2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. He was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 18, which is page 882. Sorry, 982. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. 
but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Final reading uh, is chapter 22 of Revelation, the first five verses. Right at the end, page 1005. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thanks, Tim. I'm tall. Fat, rather bald, red-faced, double-chinned, black-haired, have a deep voice and wear glasses for reading. That's how C.S. Lewis once described himself in a letter to a young admirer. Many of us probably, uh, if we're familiar with Lewis, we recognise his voice even in that one sentence. Uh, The self-deprecation, the simplicity of the language, but the precision as well. Uh, Not to mention just the the sort of humility of a man who was a worldwide uh, famous author and uh, a well-known academic taking the time to reply to a letter from a child. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at famous Christians from the 20th century because it's good to learn from our predecessors in the faith uh, and because their lives often illustrate the truths of God's word in the Bible. Uh, And so today, we're looking at C.S. Lewis. Many of us probably first came to know C.S. Lewis through The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy discover the magical land of Narnia hidden behind the coats in the back of an old wardrobe. They soon discover that Narnia is held in slavery, where it's always winter and never Christmas, by the White Witch who seduces Edmund to her side with the offer of Turkish delight uh, and a chance to get one over his older brother, Peter. And yet we soon learn that Aslan, the great lion protector of Narnia, is once again on the move. Patches of snow are starting to thaw out. The power of the witch is being threatened. And yet on the eve of the great battle between the forces of Aslan and the forces of the witch, Aslan just meekly surrenders. He exchanges himself for the traitor Edmund. And so the witch humiliates and slaughters Aslan on the stone table, 
and the forces of evil seem to have won. And then, shockingly, the girls discover that Aslan's body is gone. And they're overjoyed to meet him again, having risen from the dead, more glorious and more powerful than ever. And Aslan leads Peter and Susan, Lucy and the ransomed Edmund, and all the good beasts of Narnia, in a great battle where he defeats the White Witch and liberates Narnia into the glorious spring of Aslan. Uh, Now, that's a terrific story in its own right. Uh, It is a fantastic read. But if you're a Christian, then the discovery that the whole thing is actually a picture of the gospel, that Aslan is, in fact, Jesus, who dies for our sins and rises to defeat the devil, the white witch, and that we are Lucy and Susan and Peter and, yes, in fact, Edmund, well, that's mind-blowing. It turns out that this brilliant story is actually our story. We're not simply readers, we're actually characters in the story. In fact, better than that, we're characters in the true story that it reflects. Not just characters in the secondary story, in the secondary world, but characters in the primary story, in the primary world. Now, for those of us who are raised on sort of moralistic Sunday school lessons with gentle Jesus, meek and mild, well, to discover that Aslan, the great lion, is Jesus, and that life with him is not a miserable, dull life of trying to be good little boys and girls, but a marvellous adventure of faith in him and joy in his presence, well, that was just revolutionary. Clive Staples Lewis, or Jack, as he was known to his family and friends, was born in 1898 to a book-obsessed Protestant family in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He writes, There were books in the study, books in the dining room, books in the cloakroom, books too deep in the great bookcase on the landing, books in a bedroom, books piled as high as my shoulder in the cistern attic, books of all kinds. And in many ways, Lewis's early childhood was a very happy time for him. Uh, He used to spend the days reading books and inventing imaginary worlds with his older brother, Warney, worlds full of talking animals. But in 1908, at the age of nine and three quarters, his idyllic childhood was torn apart by the death of his mother from cancer. Not only did he lose his mother, whom he adored, he soon lost his older brother, Warney, who was sent to boarding school in England and he became increasingly estranged from his father, who just became emotionally withdrawn, never really having recovered from the death of his wife. And so Jack went off to England, bitter and resentful towards God for taking his mum, and entered a boarding school in England, where he met the school matron, Miss C, and his Christian heritage started to unravel. Lewis writes... No school ever had a better matron, more skilled and comforting to boys in sickness, or more cheery and companionable to boys in health. She was one of the most selfless people I have ever known. But he goes on to write, she was also floundering in the mazes of theosophy, Rosicrucianism, spiritualism, the whole Anglo-American occultist tradition. Nothing was further from her intention than to destroy my faith she could not tell that the room into which she brought this candle was full of gunpowder. Bitter towards God, 
drawn towards imaginary worlds, he found himself increasingly engaging in the occult. A few years later, he left boarding school to be tutored by an atheist, William Kirkpatrick, a former Presbyterian who, having renounced God, still gardened in his Sunday best. And it was under Kirkpatrick that Lewis began to excel academically. He fell in love with classic literature, he learned how to think and argue in a rigorous way, and he developed a commitment to pursuing the truth regardless of its consequences. Uh, Initially, that gave real intellectual backbone to his atheism. But unbeknownst to him and Kirkpatrick, it was also laying the foundations for his later conversion to Christianity. Lewis entered Oxford in 1917, but he soon left to fight in the First World War, where his best friend was killed, and Lewis himself was injured by a German shell. Returning to England, he became a a fellow of Magdalen College in Oxford, and it was there that he fell in with a bunch of Christian friends. It was through his conversations with them, combined with his extensive reading of a wide range of Christian authors, that he gradually found himself moving away from the atheism he'd previously been so sure of. He writes, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Uh, Lewis calls himself a convert, but at that point he was actually only a convert to theism. He now believed that there was, in fact, some kind of God, but he was not at all convinced that it was the Christian God. He wasn't trusting in Jesus. That would only come a couple of years later, after a long talk about Jesus with two Christian friends, the literary critic Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien had been describing to Lewis his idea that uh, perhaps the gospel was in fact the true story, uh, the story that all other stories were based on, that the stories we make up of the secondary worlds had actually, well, the real story had invaded the primary world. This was the true story, the tree from which all other stories were the leaves. Lewis uh, was now riding to the zoo in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. And he says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. In 1940, he published his first Christian book, The Problem of Pain, uh, Defending the Goodness of God. And in 1941, while London was experiencing German air raids, he was invited by the BBC to deliver a series of broadcasts on Christianity, uh, which made him a household name. Air Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman wrote, The war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. The broadcasts formed the basis of his book, Mere Christianity, uh, which was followed by many others, uh, including the Screwtape Letters, 
uh, the abolition of man, the great divorce, till we have faces, the chronicles of Narnia, and many, many more, including a number of highly acclaimed academic books on literary history and criticism. Uh, despite his uh, academic work, Lewis was repeatedly overlooked for a professorship at Oxford, uh, seemingly because of his outspoken defence of orthodox Christianity. And so in 1954, Lewis left his beloved home in Oxford to accept the recently founded chair of medieval and renaissance literature at Magdalen College, Cambridge. It was around that time that uh, Lewis, the confirmed bachelor, met Joy Davidman Gresham, an American writer of Jewish background, a former communist, and herself a convert from atheism to Christianity. Uh, she was separated from her alcoholic and abusive husband uh, and had come to England with her two sons, David and Douglas. Lewis uh, enjoyed her intellectual company. They formed a strong friendship. And in 1956, he agreed to marry her. Not because he loved her, but so she and her sons could stay in England. They continued to live separately after the marriage until one day, Joy tripped over the telephone line in her home and fell and broke her leg. On being taken to hospital, she was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer and Lewis suddenly realised that he loved her. They were married by an Anglican minister at Joy's hospital bedside and following treatment, the cancer went into remission. But it soon returned and Joy died on the 13th of July, 1960. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, describes his experience of her death. It begins, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. At other times it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me and I find it hard to take in what anyone says. Or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. And yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. He goes on, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate if they do and if they don't. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good. Have they never even been to a dentist? <laughs> Three years later, in mid-November 1963, after several years of illness, still trusting in Jesus, Lewis himself was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure. He collapsed and died in his bedroom at 5.30pm on the 22nd of November 1963. But his death went almost completely unnoticed because less than an hour later, John F. Kennedy was shot dead in Dallas. Now, I think there's probably three stages I've gone through in thinking about C.S. Lewis. I've already described the first one, the sort of naive appreciation, uh, a naive delight, where Lewis is the great hero, the brilliant and imaginative writer, the great defender of orthodox Christianity, a kind of a, a Christian male version of Mary Poppins, you know, practically perfect in every way. But then as you read more and more about him and more and more by him, 
I reckon the second stage kicks in where you discover that actually he's got a whole bunch of problems, <laughs> not least in his theology, which turns out to be fairly loosey-goosey at some critical points. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples that are illustrated by the Narnia series, uh, but they come up in his non-fiction writings too. Uh, firstly, Lewis's understanding of sin and atonement. It has some really helpful elements, but it actually misses some key things that are central to what the Bible says. Uh, you may remember how Edmund ends up under the power of the White Witch. It really comes about because of Edmund's pride and self-centeredness. Edmund thinks that he's better than his brother Peter, and he must be better than Aslan as well, because Aslan's kind of seems to be a bit like Peter, and he resents that other people don't recognise how great he is. He's willing to sell out his own brother and sister, not to mention Aslan himself, for a piece of Turkish delight and a bit of ego-stroking by the White Witch. In lots of ways, it's not dissimilar to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis. Pride and self-centeredness leading to a rejection of God and a hatred towards others is not a bad summary of what the Bible says about sin. But as you read on, you discover that Aslan isn't really angry about Edmund's sin. He's angry at the witch, but not at Edmund himself. Because what Edmund really needs saving from is not uh, Aslan's anger. He needs saving from himself. The problem is the Bible is very clear that God is angry at our sin. Now take Romans 1.18, for example. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the Bible insists that God is angry, not because he doesn't love people, but precisely because he does. And so he's outraged at how we treat him and how we treat others. To not care about how we treat God and treat others, that wouldn't be love, that would be a kind of callous indifference. But because Lewis misses God's anger at our sin, he misses a key aspect of what God has done for us in his love, namely that he has sent his son Jesus to take God's anger in our place by his death on the cross. Jesus takes God's wrath upon himself so that we don't have to. And in taking our punishment, he stripped the devil of his only real power, the power to rightly accuse us before God. But that's not really what happens with Aslan and Edmund and the White Witch. So according to Aslan, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Now, there is the idea of an innocent victim taking a traitor's place, but there's nothing about God, or in the language of Narnia, the emperor beyond the seas, being angry at sin and sending his son Aslan to take his wrath. Now, there's just this sort of vague reference to a deeper... <coughs> 
<coughs> excuse me, to a deeper magic. And I think that confusion probably feeds into the second problem, which is Lewis's idea of inclusivism. That is, he thinks that everyone who will be saved will be saved through Jesus. But not all of them will know it. In other words, as long as you're sincere, you can be a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, you can ignore Jesus and yet still be saved through him, as long as you're sincere. Now, that comes through most famously in The Last Battle, where Emmeth, who worships the false god Tash and says he hates the name of Aslan, enters the kind of Narnian afterlife, only to discover to his horror that Aslan is actually in control. He says, Then I fell at his feet and thought, Surely this is the hour of death, for the lion, who is worthy of all honour, will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I'm no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Yes, I, I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved and... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. Now that's a long way from Isaiah 42, verse 8, that I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another. It's a long way from John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Does it matter? Well, yeah, I think it does matter, actually. <laughs> it, mat <coughs> it matters because it misrepresents God. It removes the need to trust in Jesus. And it misunderstands the work of the Holy Spirit. So Kevin DeYoung, a Christian author, pastor, and a fan of C.S. Lewis, says, no matter how much we may like Lewis, this is simply a profound misunderstanding of the Spirit's mission. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Christ by taking what is his, his teaching, the truth about his death and resurrection, and making it known. The Spirit does not work indiscriminately without the revelation of Christ in view. John Piper says, Lewis is not a writer which we should turn to for growth in careful biblical understanding of Christian doctrine. There's almost no passage of scripture on which I would turn to Lewis for exegetical illumination. His value is not in his biblical exegesis. I think they're right, actually. And yet Kevin DeYoung and John Piper and me, and probably lots of you, still find ourselves drawn to C.S. Lewis and drawn closer to God through his writings. Why is that? Uh, well, I think this is where we come to the third stage, where we started off in naive appreciation, we've come through criticism, and now we have a critical appreciation of C.S. Lewis, where we can recognise that he has plenty of problems, but he has real value too, uh, particularly in his defence of Christianity and his evident joy in knowing Jesus. 
in one of the passages we read today, the Apostle Peter writes, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And I think that's actually something that Lewis did outstandingly well. Uh, In the introduction to mere Christianity, he writes, Ever since I became a Christian, I've thought that perhaps the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbours was to explain and defend the belief. So here's one famous example where Lewis tackles the question of who is Jesus. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, some have pointed out that actually there is another possibility that Jesus could be neither liar nor lunatic nor Lord. He could just be a legend, a made-up figure like Aslan. But Lewis has an answer for that too. He says, this is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God and there could not possibly be another. It's very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine at all easily. He goes on, Now, as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they're not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there's no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the Fourth Gospel. There's nothing even in modern literature until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. In other words, devout monotheistic Jews would never invent a leader who claimed to be God. And to an expert in legends, the Gospels sound nothing like legends. So if Jesus is not a legend, and he doesn't come across as a liar or a lunatic either, well, what other option is there? Well, only that he is precisely who he claimed to be, the Lord, the Son of God come in the flesh. So you can see that Lewis is intellectually robust, but at the same time, he's often quite gentle. He's self-deprecating. When you read his 
autobiography, he clearly likes a whole range of people who are very different from him, uh, both Christian and not. Got along well with working class people, he got along well with atheists, he got along with all sorts of people. And what comes across in his writings is not uh, a hatred of those who oppose Christianity, but rather a joy in knowing Jesus and a heartfelt desire that others would come to know the same joy. As he wrote in The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If Lewis confronts people, it's because he longs for them to leave the slums and join him at the seaside basking in the joy of knowing Jesus, the Son of God. He's kind of like uh, Mr Beaver telling Susan and Lucy about Aslan. Lucy says, is, is, is he a man? Aslan? A man? said Mr Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Lewis's writing is often like that. He uses stories to help us enter the imaginative world, to feel what it's like to be Christian from the inside. Sometimes he's like Nathan confronting King David after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed. Nathan tells the story of a poor man who has a little ewe lamb that he loves, who a rich man heartlessly takes and slaughters to satisfy his appetite. David is outraged at the injustice, and then Nathan slips in the knife. You are that man. Well, Lewis is like that. He uses stories to convict us of our sin. But then he paints a picture of the joy of knowing God in Christ Jesus, the source of all life, beauty, goodness, creativity and happiness. Perhaps you've had that experience reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe yourself, imagining yourself as Peter or Susan or Lucy, and then suddenly the idea springs into your head that perhaps you're most like Edmund, that you are that man. And yet he's also like the angel in the passage we read from Revelation, showing us a vision of the new creation, full of beauty, of kindness, reverence, laughter, love, and overflowing with life and light, streaming from God and the Lamb. Here's John Piper again. The way Lewis deals with these two things, truth and joy, is so radically different 
from liberal theology and emergent postmodern slipperiness, that he's simply in another world, a world where I'm totally at home and where I find both my heart and my mind awakened and made more alive and perceptive and responsive and earnest and hopeful and amazed and passionate for the glory of God every time I turn to C.S. Lewis. It's a pretty great testimony to be able to give about someone, isn't it? Thank God for C.S. Lewis. Amen.